0: Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's really a pleasure today to be here with Dick Flax, who is a longtime UCSB professor of sociology. And, you know, he retired a few years ago, but uh, very well known still, very well respected in the community. And obviously, as a reporter, I've read about him and known about him over the years. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because. Uh, Dick's got a lot to say, and he called me out on one of my stories recently, and I actually enjoy that, and I'm looking forward to having the conversation here about it. Dick, how are you today? I'm greatly
1: uh, appreciative of the fact that you invited me on, and and I I do have a lot to say about some of these things right now, so I feel eager to talk.
0: Okay. All right. Well, let's let's dive right in. Um, I recently wrote a story about an issue at the Santa Barbara City Council where They were talking about a rent cap, uh, an increase on the amount that a landlord or property owner could uh, increase rents. And uh, the the cap was 2% um, at the time that I wrote about it. And uh, I didn't know if CPI was involved or not, eventually became involved. Um, Obviously, this is an issue that property owners and landlords opposed, uh, tenants and activists were in favor of. Um, You know, I kind of wrote it with a tone of why now? Why? Why in December? Why? Why as Kathy Maria, the mayor is leaving? Uh, Why? Why not earlier? I sort of, you know, suggested that it was a little bit political and why not bring it up sooner? Blah, blah, blah. And uh, you, Dick, you called me out and said, hey, let's have a deeper conversation about this. So let's let's do this. What is your take on this? this proposal to, to cap the rents.
1: Well, the, the thing that I would, Josh, that I was calling you on was that it wasn't a new issue and that um, Megan Harmon on the council and Kristen Sneddon, they had actually proposed uh, raising this uh, more than a year ago and, and had a, a little paper they issued about that. I think the shots here were called largely by cause, which has been the lead organization in organizing tenants and in advocating for tenant rights. And they wanted initially, they didn't go for the rent stabilization priority because they really think the priority at that time was to to prevent uh, uh, unjust evictions and to provide more support for tenant rights. So they, but rent stabilization is part of what they're calling um, community stabilization. And that's their framing, I think, in this town because of the um, draining away of working class and minority uh, people, families and, and people from the community that's very noticeable demographically. That's what I think largely I mean by community stabilization. Can we keep our neighborhoods together? Can we keep our communities uh, uh, working class people together? in this town, given the costs of housing. That's what they're raising. By the way, I'm a member of the CAUSE Action Fund board. um, And that's part of where I get my education on some of these things. I'm also chair of the SB CAN, uh, Santa Barbara County Action Network organization been going for about 20 years that I helped to create uh, here and it's countywide. Both of these groups have been very active on the, on the tenant issues, housing issues, housing issues. So anyway, the take is, well, yes. So that it is a little confusing right now. The state adopted a cap, the state legislature, and this is pretty unusual that um, because rent control has been uh, really not just controversial issue, but uh, an issue that's largely been in, in disfavor and respectable economics circles for all many years that it supposedly doesn't work, that it's a disincentive to developing housing that's needed. Uh, Those are basically two arguments about it uh, that have come, you know, constantly been used. So nevertheless, in the midst of the pandemic as a way of giving some relief to tenants, Uh, the legislature adopted a 5% cap on rent plus the cost of living. I don't think anyone in the legislature realized that the cost of living index would be up over 6% in itself. So we're actually, the state law, which is supposed to cap rent, you could say it's now authorizing 10% or so rent increases. And that in itself creates even more of a, I think, crisis. In terms of this situation, so uh, what Kathy and uh, Oscar Gutierrez were putting on the table at the council was, you're right. Initially, I think a proposal for a two percent cap, or whichever is higher, or the cost of living index. What she was saying, the mayor um, at the at the hearing was, uh, why don't we say it's both together, that's the cap, which is similar to the state uh, rule, but with a lower percentage increase allowed. So, um, I listened to most of that hearing, which was not a pleasant experience. But, but um, you know, a lot of people talked from the land. The mom and pop landlords come out when these measures are put up i was actually feeling we were all blessed by the fact that this was on zoom because in the past when uh, these kinds of things come up the council chambers and you you i'm sure re- remember these things hugely packed by by um, supposedly mom and pop landlords i say supposedly cuz i'm sure there were people with larger holdings in the audience too but and that creates a kind of atmosphere where calm discussion isn't so easy. Oddly enough, the Zoom thing it was pleasantly boring because it wasn't uh, super you know, passionate and dramatic and filled with boos and hisses and all the rest of it. Um, so anyway, I, I listened to that. So I'm, I'm aware of at least the arguments made during that session. We can talk to about some of that because I think it was a good thing, personally. I think I'm not sure what Cause thinks about this. That they, the council agreed that we need more study, including maybe uh, some kind of uh, economic expert study of what the appropriate caps would be, um, in the context that the council, four to three at least, favors some kind of cap as as an ultimate goal. Um, and so various arguments came up there, which maybe we could talk about because I think this is a helpful conversation to have because I've been thinking a lot about uh, about these arguments. Um, so should I just proceed yeah. in my? Well, in my yeah, let just, tutorial style? <laughs> yeah.
0: Let me yeah. just. Yeah, uh, let me just interject a little bit. You know, and I remember those days when you had. The room packed, and they'd open room 15, and you could look at people, and you could see the eye rolling, and you could sort of see who was on what side, and it created for more of a dynamic and energetic sort of feel. And on Zoom, um, yeah, it's a different sort of experience. Um, it's hard to separate the issue from Kathy Murillo. so that's I think what I wanted to maybe talk to you about after you 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 answer a couple of questions, but. You know, I think that's the thing here. It's that it's tied to politics. So it's easy to say for the critics, this is just Kathy, the last minute, trying to do something to have a legacy or to mess with her opponents politically. When, yes, Kristen Snedden and Megan Harmon, they had that memo a little more than a year ago. And then it kind of disappeared it was like gone it was there and never you know nothing came up so i think that's part of it too but the core issue here let's separate the politics of kathy mario of it um and yeah just you know talk to me about some of the arguments the landlords say hey if i'm small if I'm, a, if I'm a mom and pop and i just own a couple of apartments or something i'm gonna have to sell and you're gonna get these out-of-town investors who who come in um, I won't be able to make repairs, um, on, on. I won't be able to do maintenance. You know, you hear these issues that ultimately this is bad for the tenant. So can you talk about that from your perspective? I would, you know, maybe we need
1: more data. I don't <laughs> think so, because I think it's it's kind of absurd. I heard people say, I never raise my rent. So why is this happening? Well, if, if they don't raise their rent, why are they complaining about it? Um, this is directed <laughs> at... Um, the fact that there are tenants experiencing very large uh, rent increases because we have a zero vacancy market. And landlords, many of them want to charge what the market will bear. And if this tenant can't pay it, someone else will come in who will pay it. It's amazing how many people are bidding, bidding up, you know, when they're buying housing, bidding up beyond the asking price in order to get housing. Um, in this very tight and very competitive market, so uh, the way I look at, at at the rent control issue at this in this point in history is simply to put some restraint on all of that. Because, and this is to me, this is the fundamental point. What I'm about to say, it is not the case that this is an ordinary business transaction. Nobody who lives lives in a rental apartment. Uh, for any length of time thinks, oh, I'm just doing business in having this apartment. This is the home. This is my resting place. This is my haven. This is where I make my life. And so there's a a deep emotional attachment that most renters, I was raised in New York. We were renters all my life. um, Believe it's their home. And it is their home. (laughs) So to simply say it's a, it's a contractual relationship and the market should determine these things um, doesn't make sense to tenants ever, I don't think. Um, and I, and then from a practical point of view, I'm a homeowner. In fact, I have a rental apartment. I rent to people uh, nowadays who I know who because I am alone in this house, so I want to have somebody there that can... Can be you know sort of a companion in some way, but um, I don't. I make repairs. I don't need my rental money to pay for the repairs. I put it on my credit card. I put it. I can get um, you know home equity loans for putting in you know various kinds of things, a new furnace or roof, roofing repairs. Um, I, I I don't even I don't understand how this argument even makes sense. The rents are high. Um, and they've been able to uh, if they if the rents they're charging now enable them to um, make those uh, do what they need to keep up the place uh, it seems to me people you know in ordinary daily life we know that that it, it isn't the rents that are paying for for those they're, they're, they can be helpful of course but they're not fundamental and neither is the value of the property dependent on um, or, or the profit from the from or the the gain that the landlord's making isn't simply dependent on the rents uh, i don't want to deny that there are people who might really be dependent on rents uh, to to make their livelihood uh, and a two percent cap plus the cost of living probably allows for more rent increases than than they might normally provide so i i, I think those arguments shouldn't be just, determinative of how members of the council or members of the public feel about the the value of the issue. We need to really examine those claims. Now, the other kind of claim is the economist claim, when you put rent controls on rental apartment, then you're disincentivizing uh, the development of new rental housing. And that may well have been true in the history of rent control Uh, But it's no longer legally possible for the city to Mm. put rent control on recently built housing. In fact, the state law requires that housing built less than 15 years ago cannot be covered by rent control anywhere in the state. Uh, And this bill, whenever it is going to happen, that that the council will deal with, will take account of that. And you know, there are even members of the council were raising the question of whether um, whether rent control could be a disincentive for developing new rental housing. And that's that's probably partly why they wanted to do some kind of study on this, because um, there's a crying need for much more development of rental housing that will be affordable. And is there the case that if you have a 30 year you know mortgage on a uh, or you know a, a loan in order to develop a large rental housing project uh 15 years may not be enough to protect uh that investment but it's worth you know examining that uh i don't think that's an argument against the need for a rent cap uh, at this point we don't know what the situation in the world will be Next year, let alone 15 years or 30 years down the line, um, and you know, if someone wants to take the vacant Sears building and develop hundreds of units of rental housing, I would really think that would be great, and that should be encouraged. Uh, and I don't, you know, I doubt that rent control is a, will dis- will will be a barrier to that. But, you know, that was brought up and it needs to be uh, dealt with as as a topic. So the idea, and over and over again, the landlord lobbyists say rent control never works. And our new mayor, talking about mayors, he has said that over and over again in interviews. It doesn't ever work. I don't know what the foundation of that flat statement is, but that again, and I hope there'll be more debate That's why it's good there's going to be some delay. There'll be a chance to really discuss this in the community. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, if you go online, there's a lot of research of various kinds and various levels of quality on this very question. I think it's, I don't, I'm not a big expert on this, but I think it's fair to say that rent control works for tenants who are living under rent control in keeping their housing more affordable than it would otherwise be. And there's good evidence that people who might feel they had to move out because of rising rents don't. In other words, there is more stability, there is more stability in neighborhoods covered by uh, by rent caps than in neighborhoods that are not. Um, Is there a decline in the quality of upkeep of apartments? Maybe there's some research that shows there is a decline sometimes, and not in other communities, not um, where I agree with the critics. Um, and so does cause, is rent control is not the solution for affordable housing, it is part of a program that is needed. And that's what I really wanted to talk about. Yeah. Cause's agenda, when they talk about community stabilization, they're talking about developing new housing. They, they certainly agree that the supply of affordable housing must be increased. And they've worked toward that end. They supported rezoning uh, the AUD program downtown. Um, they, and you know they've lobbied in favor of policies that will expand the possibility of affordable housing um, to be built. The problem is all the conversation in this town and most of the country. Uh, is restricted to how can we provide incentives to private developers to make affordable housing? And that's what doesn't work. Hmm. There is not much chance for private developers to develop affordable housing on the scale that, that we can identify as needed. And the one thing that policies have done in LA and in Santa Barbara and other places Okay, you make a develop. You're building rental housing. You've got to set aside a percentage of that, those apartments for affordable uh, rentals. Uh, that doesn't meet anywhere near the supply requirements that people recognize as needed. And what we we have the example of what can do it, and that is the the housing authority of this city, which is nationally known as a brilliantly creative enterprise that develops affordable housing with public subsidy. You can't rely on private developers looking for profit. The housing authority isn't looking for a profit. They're using whatever available resources which are very meager uh, in in this country. And they've done these miraculous projects and pretty much every month they announce a new project of you know that will house the homeless they just uh, they just broke ground on this project for 28 units of people you know that will provide housing for very marginally m- marginally affordable people who can't really afford housing period uh with with i guess soon some services and so forth <clears throat> this is what they do and they're in a position I mean, we're so blessed in this town by the fact that this enterprise has existed for all these years. It's something like 15% of the uh, units in this town are uh, public housing created by the Housing Authority. And the County Housing Authority, which my late wife, Mickey Flax was a, a commissioner of, also very creative in the county. So are there sources of funding that will expand what the Housing Authority can do. They're constantly looking for those. The Build Back Better bill, which is sitting in Joe Manchin's pocket, uh, would provide an unprecedented level of federal funding for housing, affordable housing. And it's sitting there stalemated. Uh, that I've been eager to see that come into being. One of the ways uh, that we do know federal funds are used for housing, is so-called Section 8 housing, which is a program that, that allows poor people to get um, a voucher that they can take to a landlord and say, uh, rent me your place and you will uh, rent, rent it to me for only 30% of my income, but the federal voucher will allow you to be subsidized um, to, to the rent that, that you want to charge it's really section eight is a subsidy program for landlords uh, to provide uh, affordability. That's a pretty weak way of financing this, uh, you know, new rental uh, apartments, but it's one way. And in, I think there's 3000 people sitting on waiting lists, the housing authority for section eight vouchers. Uh, and that's a national fact. One of the main reasons for homelessness is that the Section 8 program covers a tiny fraction of those actually eligible by virtue of their income in this country for such vouchers. They can't get them. When they get a voucher, it doesn't mean they're automatically able to get an apartment. In fact, it may be quite difficult, even though there are laws against discriminating against uh, Section 8. Uh, There's certainly that so but section eight should be expanded everyone eligible for section eight should be able to get it um,
0: um and let, let me add yes. something there um for a second um you know when i hear the landlord say we don't increase the rents um you know i know from my own you know family's experience you know my my mom has passed away but you know my father's still around and he rents. you know we rented our whole lives and he he lived in a little studio and uh, they raised the rent like four hundred and fifty bucks overnight like one month to the next yeah and uh you know so he's already you know paying like you know at the time like nine hundred dollars or something it's a few years ago like well that's you can't absorb that you know like that's 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 too much you know on his you know uh retirement or you know social security and and so then i i i got involved and um Like, well, what are the options? So we went and, you know, got him a section eight voucher and, you know, did that whole thing and it took some time and, you know, he was able to, uh, to, uh, you know, find a place that he could live with that voucher, but the landlord is whole, the landlord still gets their money. Uh, my father's no richer, you know, there's this perception that, that these people are somehow, you know, richer because of uh the government when there nothing's going into their pocket <laughs> you know that's just like the landlord still gets to charge their market rate it's just yep. the rest of it comes from the government so i know that landlords raise rent not all of them of course you know and, and this was a mom and pop landlord this was not somebody like a big chain this is somebody who just owns a few apartments you know um it's almost as though those people kind of will want to raise it more because they do own just fewer, whereas the big ones, they can absorb it, you know, they can spread it out. So I, I do see that. I wanted to sort of, you know, um, just talk to you. There's these horror stories that come up. They come up at the council and you hear these people call in and they always bring up San Francisco and they always say in San Francisco, you've got these rich people, you've got these attorneys, you've got these people who have means who will not leave their apartment because it's rent controlled, even though they absolutely can't afford to. Um, and and they, that's not what rent control should be it's not the type of person that should be benefiting from this kind of program so you hear these stories like like if you could just imagine it's like this nightmare of people squatting in their rent-controlled apartments and that's what we're going to see here in Santa Barbara nobody's ever going to leave and we're going to have all these rundown buildings because of it um can you address sort of that is that is that a reality some places is it a fear um is that something from the the 80s or the 70s? I mean, what is that argument all about?
1: I think part of the argument is, a, is more New York than, I don't know much about San Francisco in this case, but New York had rent control. When I was growing up, um, We rent control was a very strong um, provision in New York uh, housing. Uh, and um, then after World War II, there was tremendous Landlord pressure to modify the law, and uh, but those, and still to this day, I think if you occupy a rent-controlled apartment, you keep it. Uh, um, uh, it's keep it's kept under rent control. Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of tremendous loopholes. Uh, I would say everyone. Uh, I guess the generalization would be in New York that. Rent control has not worked in many, many cases, and yet it still does protect large numbers of working-class and middle-income people who are longtime time uh, renters. Um, and I guess what I was beginning to get at is what we need is uh, what did develop in in New York as a positive thing was nonprofit social housing. That means. Uh, organizations, government and other organizations, finding the financial capacity to develop large scale rental apartment developments all throughout the city. That was a big thing after World War II. And in Europe, that was the primary way that people recovered from World War II was vast housing development sponsored by the government or, or, you know, uh, unions, for example, and other organizations uh, getting in on the game of developing uh, housing. In New York, my parents uh, lived in a co-op housing project, uh, which is a very beneficial thing. It's tenant, tenant run and you, don't, uh, you you have the benefits of ownership from a tax point of view, uh, if you're a member of a co-op, but you, you can't sell your apartment on the market like a condo When you leave the apartment, it goes back to the organization, to the community. And so the rents on that apartment are always below what the market would would be. And there's large numbers of co-op housing in New York, but nowhere else in this country. So uh, what's needed are means of financing that don't depend on profitability to, to exist. Yesterday, it was announced that in LA, a measure is about to be put on the ballot, uh, if they can get the signatures, a group of, a coalition of groups. Uh, uh, The the measure uh, puts a property, a tax on um, so-called deed transfer, a tax on, uh, on the transfer of ownership for any real estate deal above I don't know whether I think it's five million dollars a two percent tax on any uh on any real estate transaction above uh, five million dollars and then a bigger tax on huge you know like 40 million or whatever it was so that's the measure that's going to be on the ballot and they are saying the backers of this that this will be an important way of financing, Housing for homeless people and for other people who can, uh, are, are desperately unable to uh, you know it's still for poor people. It's not workforce housing that it would said to be financing. but that's one measure. I've heard discussion in town here and even I think Randy Rouse somebody interviewed him that I saw maybe it was you um, and he said uh, about a bond issue for housing locally and I think he he didn't completely, dismiss that, Uh, that that is something that I know cause among other organizations wants to look into to see what what can be done locally, not dependent on federal or state funding uh, to develop affordable housing in the community. Um, That's an avenue that we should have started exploring this long ago uh, as an avenue because it doesn't depend on big housing programs on the national level it's something that maybe we can do something about locally but as we know that you know the cost of building new housing in, with the land costs and everything else is is problematic in this town the league of women voters is exploring what public land exists downtown or in the in the city that could be place sites for housing development uh, by the by the community in other words taking the land costs uh, away from the problem yeah. if you can one example would be downtown parking lots you can build above them uh, and this has been talked about yeah. uh, but the but the, i think the league has they, they do these uh explorations downtown every couple of weeks looking for these sites and they're they're not just owned by the city, there's school sites or there's um, you know, other, other, other publicly owned sites that could be places for housing development. So that's an important part of the process. Um, another part of the process that I don't understand why, why we can't do something about, and I hope that there's gonna be more leadership toward this, Why are we plan housing within the city and not realize we've got a regional problem uh, that people who work in the city live outside of the city, that we've got the Nolita area, the whole Goleta Valley area, and then the city of Goleta? I think uh, ultimately what we want is some kind of housing plan for, for socially supported housing that can Stretched throughout the coast and maybe even countywide, so that um, so that the uh, so that the idea that you that we will just overcrowd the city, which is part of I think the NIMBY resistance to housing, uh, may not be so much of an issue. There's there is zoned area in Nolita for, that where hundreds of housing units could be developed um, and. Maybe there are plans or people looking at this, but what I'm talking about is developing these new housing that's not dependent on private developer incentives. If you have to guarantee five or 10% return, you're not going to get affordable housing out of it. We see that from the AUD uh, program. You're going to get maybe some workforce housing in that a lot of people do work in town and they have six figure incomes. And even those people can't really afford, you know, uh, market rents or the, the usual market rents, but the AUD higher density uh, kinds of developments may be more affordable for them. Um, but it, it wasn't a solution. And, uh, but it, but it wasn't not, it wasn't a bad thing to do. I just think it, it, it it's not the answer, but it's, so you see what I'm saying? We need a, a comprehensive uh, a program and it has to include uh, financing and development that isn't dependent. And I'll, I'll add one other thing because I'm very involved in this. Uh, there's been talk for years about employers developing employee housing. Um, very little of that was done. There was a great case when uh, you know Cottage Hospital developed uh, 150 or so units for their staff uh, in town. That seemed like maybe the opening gun of you know what could be a long-term development in the community where major employers would would be doing that. But that nothing followed from that within within the city. Uh, even though every year the Coastal Housing Coalition, which is the organization of big employers, they have these conferences where people come and say, we need employer-sponsored housing. I've been to these over and over again. The architects come to those conferences and they lay out uh, fascinating schemes for employers to develop new housing that, that can be designated for their employees. Nothing has happened on that, um, and, but except for the university. Uh, and and Westmont College, I think they've developed some housing, but UCSB, and uh, about ten years ago, uh, presented a long-range development plan (LRDP) that provided for 5,000 new student, additional students to be added to the campus, and 1,800 faculty and staff would go along with that. Sir, you know that was the that was what was the projected growth of the campus in that plan. And what UCSB promised in 2010 was to develop housing. UCSB would develop housing that would house all those people: five thousand students, eighteen hundred faculty and staff, and their families housed by the university. Uh, I helped form an organization, a coalition of environmental groups called SUN, Sustainable University Now. And we looked at their LRDP and there were problems within it. So we had a period of negotiation with the UCSB administration to modify the LRDP to make sure it met community needs on energy, on water, on traffic, on all kinds of dimensions like that, and it's a it's a legal uh, agreement between SUN and UCSB, and the city of Goleta and the county as well have similar agreements, and housing is an important part of this. Well, the sad story is, as we now know from the Munger monstrosity, that, that um, so far, the promised housing hasn't happened, um, it's supposed to be done by 2025, all that housing that I've just mentioned. Sun was enthusiastic about the LRDP precisely because of the housing promise, because this was a huge benefit to the community um, to take a lot of people, you know, to really expand the housing market in that way. UCSB builds employee housing and it's below market um, uh, uh, rents that are built into the, the development. Uh, and um, the way we negotiated it, it didn't require that new faculty would move in there. Any faculty and any staff uh, could be uh, able to be part of the, uh, you know, the market for this new housing that was going to be built. So we are in a. We at Galita started this uh, lawsuit against the um, university for this very reason that the, there's been this non-compliance. The Munger project is part of the reason for the, for the failure. Uh, when Munger dangled his $200 million, it really seemed to solve a big problem for the universities. How are we gonna finance all this housing? Well, here's a gift. We don't have to even go into debt uh, to start building these, this big dormitory uh, uh, project that we, that we need to build and that the plan provided for. But that plan, the LRDP, provides for five, I think, five different sites for much smaller dormitory housing than what Munger was about. Mm -hmm. So they put all of that on the shelf in favor of a single gigantic, what turns out to be huge, gigantic, the biggest dormitory ever conceived. It's bigger than the Egyptian pyramid. You know, it's like a gigantic thing. Um, And the result, you know, has been an, an international uh, scandal about this project, um, and that's really and you know there's a perfect storm here because um, the uh, legislature pushed the UC system to admit many more students than had been planned. So we reached at UCSB the five thousand uh, increase two years ago. It's supposed to be reached by twenty twenty five. So this huge acceleration in the influx of students without the housing at all, they're added to the housing market. Many of them were They're tripling up in, in, in the dorms, in IV and in, in the apartments in IV and in the dorms. So not a good situation. And then, you know, uh, with COVID nobody was here. So it seemed to provide a, a respite from the problem, but now as we know, the problem is is severe. And it isn't only in Santa Barbara. UC, all the UC campuses, I think, have some housing uh, crunch because of this acceleration in, in enrollment. Well, we've been... So if UCSB were to fulfill these plans, it would be helpful to the whole region. That's my point. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm saying this now because I think... The legislature, as well as the campus and the system, UC system, have a responsibility now to facilitate, uh, for example, the dormitory development. And I think Monique Limon is aware of this. I believe there are bills now in the legislature for a vastly increased state program to support higher education dormitory development. Um, It's, It's not expensive because it pays for itself, but you need a revolving fund. You need the financing to be available to enable these projects to get off the ground and not to be dependent on private financial sources, which have not worked. They've tried that and it has not worked to develop the housing needed. That's my story,
0: Josh. Thanks for listening. <laughs> we, we got about 15 minutes of the conversation. Okay. Just Sorry to off. Um, let, let me ask you a couple of things. I can hear Sheila Lodge, not to single her out, but that group, that crowd, you've had these, these, these clashes with the preservationists over the years, and I want to hear what you have to say about it. Um, building on top of parking lots, identifying city-owned land to build housing and high-density housing you know, you always hear less so now than 15, 20 years ago, but you hear, if we do that, we'll ruin what makes Santa Barbara so special. If we have a whole bunch of high density buildings, we're going to have more traffic and people are not going to want to come to Santa Barbara. Um, people want to be able to see the ocean from the Riviera. Uh, people like their sight lines um can you address that um is it it's probably not like one or the other but certainly the community has to give a little bit here right yeah well first of all
1: demographically the city has not grown it has actually declined in population i believe um so when we came here and and mickey and i were involved in in the early 70s in the controlling growth movement here very much she was very active in that um it was about the population growth of the city it wasn't about density it was about growth well part of this idea of community stabilization is is we're losing people we're losing the whole workforce we're losing the young people not to mention minority you know L- latino and, and and other minority people who are the workforce who are key part of the workforce. And that's bad for the community. It's bad for the environment. It's it doesn't, it's not the town that we know to have a, a bunch of wealthy second home. You know, how many vacant apartments, how many vacant uh dwelling units are there in town because they're second homes that are not on the rental market. Uh this to me is, you know, dramatic and scary fact that um in the midst of, an, of a zero vacancy rate for, for housing, there are vacant homes most of the year um, owned by very wealthy people. Mm. Is that what we want? No, I don't think Sheila Lodge wants that. Um, that's one point. And so, and, and, when, and I don't think people are advocating, I haven't heard anyone advocate high rise apartment mm. building, um, but to the height limit, you know, there was a charrette done by uh, by the architects uh, a few on, on developing State Street, you know, and they have some very lovely ideas about what kind of housing could be built right downtown on the parking lots and all that. But one of my answers to Sheila, uh, and I've actually mentioned this to her, you know, she talks about the small town atmosphere. So I live down here on Garden Street near Alice Keck Park park and um, walk around here this is this is a hundred years ago that this, a lot of this started it's a very high density I think there's densities on my street and other streets around here higher than anybody is proposing in the AUD area um, apartment buildings yes but also you know multiple unit houses. Duplexes, what we now call granny units, long-standing, multiple units on a particular piece of property. It's a very dense neighborhood, and it is the heart of the small town. This is this is the heart of Santa Barbara down here. Mm-hmm. Now, above a certain street, I guess Valerio, it's very much <laughs> zoned to for larger plots and single family housing, and it's more luxurious, but the heart of the town, the small town feel, I don't think anyone would think that living in this area is, um, uh, you know, too much urbanization, on the contrary. Um, so that's, I don't think the density argument is a good faith argument, and I, I'm, I'm really uh, in agreement with some of the architects who pushed this point you can have lovely, beautiful and very, um, very uh, humanly human scale housing designed for, with high density. Uh, and that's what they've tried to show with their charrettes. Um, and the housing authority, which Sheila appreciates the, she's always says she's a supports affordable housing. Uh, and, and there we do agree, in other words, if it's, if it's market housing, new, new market housing, we don't need it. We don't need it. Yeah. Um, and uh, therefore, that would be a sacrifice. It could be seen as a sacrifice to develop that kind of housing downtown. Um, sacrifice of, of whatever of the environment that we now live in, that we enjoy. But affordable housing, well-designed, is what we're about, what we're could be about as a community. I uh, I'm I'm actually thinking of, of um, I'll say this public asking Sheila would she come out for uh, for rent control because that would um, help influence the new mayor since he seems to defer to her on many issues uh, and if she's for affordable housing uh, isn't rent control a necessary transitional step to keep the workforce uh, and, and the community stable, while answers are found for the longer term in terms of making the community livable, livable for all classes of people. Um, that's, I guess, my remote conversation with with, with Sheila Lodge. <laughs> so we, we've actually touched on three mayors, we, maybe any other mayors we wanna bring up. Um, <laughs> I, I say that jokingly because I never understood, frankly, how much weight was being put on Kathy Murillo's leadership or lack of leadership. Um, mayors are not necessarily the key force in bringing about uh, the kind of development that we're talking about. Uh, and um, it, that's good. I mean, we want citizen action to be uh, in control of things, not mayors. Uh, and so anyway that's just my
0: yeah I mean we have a strong city manager former government that's right
1: and that's right
0: and everybody I mean we have such a high level of activism in Santa Barbara everybody thinks they know what's going on better than the person next to them and yeah. it's easy to point at people uh and electeds when the truth is that Randy's going to come in and he's going to have his his um, objectors really fast, just like Kathy did. Um, and there's not going to be much he can do about anything either. I guess it's symbolic leadership that that people want from the mayor. Um, well, let me make one comment, Josh, yeah. on this, just as a personal
1: thing. I'm uh, an old guy. I'm very settled. I'm well taken care of financially. So I understand that people like me don't want change. I understand it in my own gut. Mm-hmm. I, I wanna live the rest of my life in normal, calm, lovely, peaceful way. And i that's where the, the what you call preservation is. I don't know if that's the best term. I, NIMBY, you know, they gotta stick with NIMBY. Um, as you know, and that's that's my shorthand. Uh, I understand where this is psychologically coming from, but it can't govern, it can't govern the future. Um, too many young people's lives are at stake. Too many working people's lives are at stake. The character of the community is at stake. And Randy may want to govern with the slogan, bring back normality or build, you know, make America, make Santa Barbara normal again, but normal isn't working anymore in in that meaning of normal. Uh, And I'm not talking about super development, I'm talking, you know, there is a good point that we can't build enough housing to house all of the people who work in the city. Although if we planned regionally, and if we coupled it with public transportation, kind of uh, planning integral to the housing, uh, I think we would, we would redefine what the boundaries of the community are that we're talking about and that would make sense um and, and, but it has to be affordable affordable community across the board i mean what happens if, if everything in galita is skyrocket rocketing and you know there uh, you know there's got to be some regulation control and i want to use this term because my dear departed wife really loved this term social housing rather than housing as a commodity uh, is is what uh, I'm advocating and what I think is building up uh, as a political force in the community. And I hope Randy can be persuaded to understand that even though he's a businessman who thinks business is the best measure of efficiency. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, we miss Mickey Flax and, uh, you know, her advocating at City Hall and, you know, her role as in the planning commission on the county. uh, You know, she made people listen. (laughs) She didn't care (laughs) about uh, being uh, necessarily uh, fake or polite, overly polite. It's like, here's what we need to do and you need to hear it. And if you don't like it, too bad. And I watched her do that. She she did that to me as a reporter. She's yeah. just blunt. And I oh, yeah, so I, one
1: other thing there on that point. So uh, I I had to listen to her too, and it was my pleasure for sixty years. Um, my son Chuck Flax, who is also a housing advocate, and he's actually working for the LA homeless agency right now, but he lives in town. We've set up the Mickey Flax Social Housing Fund. Uh, in the Fund for Santa Barbara. It's a, a uh, fund within the Fund for Santa Barbara. Uh, and um, it that's like everything the Fund for Santa Barbara does. It will provide grants, seed money kind of grants for people who want to uh, develop social housing in this community. I don't mean the actual housing development, but advocate for or maybe people want to create housing co-ops which she loved mickey very much loved that idea um, so that's you know, one way we're c- continuing the legacy that you're talking about mickey flack social housing fund go to this fund for santa barbara website and you can find it there and if you want end of year giving go do it thanks all
0: thanks. right thanks for little cool.
1: commercial time
0: yeah right <laughs> Dick, um, that's a great spot to end. I really appreciate your time and you uh, explaining these issues so eloquently. I had a great time sort of just listening to these perspectives. And you've you've outlined a whole platform. I hope the city council and the the city administrator and the decision makers sort of, you know, listen and maybe think about going with this multi-pronged regional approach. It's too bad the city didn't, I don't know if it's too bad, but, you know, Annex. i think there was a time when they could have annexed yeah. more of the eastern Galita valley and they would have more control over that i don't know the politics of all that but um you know you make a good point it's a regional issue it's a it's a it's a it's a local issue it's a regional issue it's multi-pronged we we get caught up on individuals and politics when really it's much bigger than that
1: josh i appreciate what not only the chance to be on here but i appreciate you you guys the handful of people josh you and uh, nick welsh and and others in the community who are keeping alive uh, you know in-depth intelligent journalism for the community this is a huge national problem as well as local um, of the decline of you know local journalism so i know you're working probably harder than you want to work but but it's a great service and the, doing this podcast I hope that you know I also have my own podcast I'm trying to uh, use this form is is I hope a creative effort and I hope people are listening uh to it um and so uh and I will I will do more listening to it than I have now that I've
0: been a guest yeah yeah um, you Anywhere. don't want to get me started on the state of journalism. I mean, that's just so depressing and sad. And, uh, you know, I really like Nick Welsh is amazing. And, uh, you know, Jerry and my, like, we remember stuff that happened more than five years ago, you know, and that's really important when you're trying to understand the future, you got to understand, like, how do we get to this point? You mentioned that you have a UCSB, uh, weekly radio show, the culture of protests. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, it's on. When's that KCSB. on? When can I hear that? When can people Thursday Thursdays at four is when it's
1: on the radio. Uh-huh. Uh, and you can, you know, there's a website, kcsb.org, that also you, know, you can tune into it. Um, and um, if I'll put you on my mailing list, but if anyone's interested, uh, they can send me a, a email to rflax at gmail.com. Um, to get on my mailing list for the program, because there's ways to access it when it's not on the air. Um, there's an archive that it allows you to access it. People, there are fans of this program, so I must be do- doing something good. But for me, uh, it, it's a great. It's been a great learning experience for decades of, of the kinds of music that have has developed historically and and now all over the world that deal with social change and movements and political expression. That's what I do every week. Um, And I even have a Christmas show that I've done for 40 years um, that'll be on next week. Protest Christmas music. Okay. So um, thanks for that plug. And I'll plug one more thing since we talked about journalism. The independent... Uh, asked if they could create a fund in Mickey's name. So there's a Mickey flex fund for social justice journalism that is, um, uh, housed in under SB cans website. People can donate there. Oh. And, um, we have a little committee independent of the independent that evaluates proposals that come for, again, uh, stipends or bits of support so that there can be some in-depth journalistic efforts in the community uh, housed at the independent. Uh, I worked for a while with a bunch of people thinking we could we could bring into being such an entity um, uh, and it, it for various reasons fell through, but, but this on a much smaller scale is doing something uh, that uh you know that that we're glad and i was really stoked by the fact that they wanted to name it for mickey so that's maybe confusing but they're
0: two separate mickey flags and do you we have to work for the independent to apply for these funds ask ask brandy okay <laughs> i mean that's a good question
1: you know if you if you have an idea I don't i don't think I should encourage this public uh no. because because it we don't
0: you know fine.
1: but but uh it, it could be that uh, such a proposal could be could be considered
0: yeah no um I, I, that, that's fine that sounds like an excellent program and uh i I've seen some of the work you know that has come out of that and uh that's great you know good for you we, we need we need more of that and uh we actually as journalists we just all need to work together because Um, you know, the idea that we're like, you know, in Chicago and you know in the 80s and we're competing with like scoop (laughs) scoop, scoop, like that's gone. Um, because we all need to work together, even under with for different organizations, because like there's such a small pool. We need to just do the best journalism we can and and support each other. So I think that's a good a good thing. Oh, there
1: there was a model there was a model a few years ago that I don't know what happened to it of having collaborative local journalism where you'd have um you know, the a TV news n- news department, maybe a, a public radio news department, uh, maybe the journalism department of a university, and a newspaper, uh, all collaborating um, on you know with certain amount of open source reporting, I guess, <clears throat> and and sharing of stuff. I don't know whether that model. Uh, has actually worked uh i think there was an effort in the bay area to do that and the thing that i was referring to i can't we don't have time to get into it uh, was an effort to imagine that we could do something like that uh here in santa barbara we're not um, going to get
0: into mission and state that's five five hours of mission broadcast. and State was
1: was the outcome of that right. and it was not a good idea um <laughs>
0: all right dick hey yeah. i appreciate i appreciate okay. your time i need to wrap up but thanks again okay. such yeah. a pleasure such an honor and let's do it again sometime and Please, i'm going to be one it. of those people sending you the email so i can listen to the archive of that radio show Great. so
1: thank you josh thanks let's a keep lot going so take care.